0: Uh, Western civilization has uh, much to owe in the way of development, um, all sorts of things that we uh, take for granted that is a product of great wisdom and creativity and innovation. And yet, at the same time, there are all sorts of things that, in Western civilization, now things that we once had, we're, we're losing too quickly. Things are going extinct. And, and one of those things that has gone extinct in the last recent decades is the mixtape. Right? Remember those? Right? Make it for a friend, make it for a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it would be, you know? And, and that took a lot of effort, you know? Cassette tapes. What is that? Um, and you would have to, you, know, you would pick the songs. Not only would you pick the songs, you would pick their sequence. And, and therefore, there was almost a certain unspoken narrative arc to what, you, well, when you tried, right? And there it was. And, and so you put a lot of effort into it. Whereas now, you know, it's click here, click here, click here, send. Woo! Oh, it took a lot from you. Um, Mixtapes were different. Mixtapes required something of you. We, this summer, have been, if you will, listening to Israel's mixtape, what they would sing on their way to pilgrimage festivals. And if you've been listening carefully, you, you might have noticed that that there is a sequence of things. And though we may not know exactly where it begins and where it ends, we know that from time to time you start to hear overlap between psalms. And so a few weeks ago you might have heard when Andrew preached on Psalm 127 and then I preached the following week on Psalm 128, there was a great deal of overlap about the blessing of family and, and the way in which God works in it. Well, I, this week's psalm and, and next week's psalm, I think they go together also because they're, they're a pairing of opposites. Next week in, in Psalm 130, that psalm is all about what do you do when you've blown it? What What is the song that you sing when you've blown it? So I've asked my, my country western archivist at home to find me a song that might typify that feeling. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you next week. We'll see if we come up with anything. This week, however, is different. Psalm 129 is not about what happens when you've blown it. Psalm 129 is going to speak to the question about what happens when you face nothing but malice and mistreatment. When you've Staring in the face of uncharitableness and won't let up. I will not ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever been harassed or beaten down or ridiculed or worse? It happens to many of us. Maybe it happens to all of us to some degree. But the question is, when those moments come, what do you do? And I don't mean just... What do you do with the feelings that you feel in the midst of being treated with mistreatment? What do you do? This psalm is going to offer us, I think, two responses. Ancient responses. But that I think have relevance to our day. Two responses in the face of mistreatment, but they both center on one belief. And that belief is what you heard sung in the prelude, that God is just. And somehow, in knowing that, and in responding from that place, we have something more than just reacting or cratering. We're in Psalm 129. I wonder if you might stand once more to hear it and focus your attention on it.
1: The scripture reading for today is Psalm 129. Since my youth, they have often attacked me. Let Israel say, since my youth they have often attacked me, but they have not defeated me. The plowers plod my back, they made their furrows long, the Lord is just. He cut the ropes of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be humiliated and turned back. May they be like the grass on the rooftops, which withers before one can even pull it up, which cannot fill the reaper's hand, or the lap of the one who gathers the grain. Those who pass by will not say, may you experience the Lord's blessing. We pronounce a blessing on you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. You can sit. I know it's a broken record uh, each week, not a mixtape, but a broken record that when you hear us say, we're not really sure about the exact circumstances that give rise to each one of these Psalms, but I think if you were to Hear it or or read it again, I think there are some parts of its backstory that though mysterious, there's enough here to gather what might be going on. This psalmist is one voice, but they are speaking for a nation. That's a a song, it's a prayer that's really like a ballad. It's telling a story. And that story that this psalm is out to tell is one of the experience of hatred. Hatred that has rained down upon a people. And therefore, you if you were listening carefully, twice you heard the phrase, since my youth, I have been afflicted. Since my youth, they have afflicted me. And again, whatever it was, whoever the they are, they're compared to those that, that use the plow. That break up the soil. And the psalmist speaks for Israel and for himself or herself that what it felt like was like a plow was coming up their back. Something had left a mark and it was painful. And again, we don't know exactly what it's speaking to, what inspiring the psalm. It could have been, have everything to do with, Egypt, with Israel's experience in Egypt. They knew what enslavement was. They knew what it was to come under The lash. Maybe it had to do with Israel's experience in Babylon under exile. But whatever it was, it was a sustained, malicious mistreatment. Now, um, kids, I don't know if it's still a thing in school, but are there still bullies? Maybe there are. Maybe you call them by different names that we shall not mention here. Um, But it's definitely the stuff of film, and definitely the stuff of the past. But there are there are people in schools who love who love to show that they're strong and to love to intimidate the weak they dig it they get something from it and they're not just like a one off they they keep doing it cuz cuz usually that kind of mistreatment fuels more mistreatment it's like a it's like a little drug and you get addicted to it that's there and and usually if you are on the business end of that kind of treatment usually if you are the victim of what you are up against um, more often than not unfortunately everybody else either scatters or or pulls out their phone to record the event and and if you're on the business end of that experience that mistreatment you're, you're asking yourself is no one gonna defend me here does nobody care Whatever, if you've ever had that experience in school, if you've ever had that experience in the workplace, if you've ever had that experience in your neighborhood, look. uh, There are other psalms in the Psalter in which the psalms, the psalmists are asking that very same thing: Will nobody defend me? And not only does their outcry go against the fact that no one's defending, they're saying, "Even you, Lord, are you for?" Hello, it hurts. It hurts this psalm it, it certainly speaks of a situation in which the pain and the mistreatment has gone on for a very long time but it is not all darkness as it says there in verse three or rather verse two greatly have they afflicted me from my youth yet they have not prevailed against me The beatdown has been harsh, but they're still up. Now, at risk of trivializing that sort of experience, um, there's this famous painting by Norman Rockwell. It's called The Shiner. And so there she is uh, at school, and apparently she's got into a little bit of a tussle, and uh, it's worked so well that here she is, and she's got a shiner, but look at her. <laughs> she's smiling. <laughs> and meanwhile the principal and the secretary are in the office going, What are we gonna do? And she's out there like, I don't care, you should have seen the other girl. Um But there it is, right? Beaten up, but I am here. I'm still standing better than I ever did. Okay, anachronistic, but go with me. That's the feel of it, right? I am I am whooped, but I am smiling. Now bring it back down to earth. What does Paul say in second Corinthians? When he speaks very candidly about what he has faced, that the afflictions are real. And so he says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He's not papering over what he's faced, he's not calling it a mere flesh wound, he's not saying that I recommend this to anyone. He's saying, this is what I've faced. And his explanation for why he can still be standing, while he can still have something of a smile on his face, while he has something far deeper and unkind as a shiner, far more. It's because of what I think he could say in verse 4 and nod his head. In verse 4, The Lord is just. He has cut the cords the The idea of cords there being if you were going to keep with the plow metaphor of being plowed up, what do you what do you plow with back in that day? You you plow with something you've got reins on, you've got cords to hold you to it as you're plowing up, cutting the cords. It's done. This is brought to an end. The Lord is just. And that word there for just, it's the Hebrew word Tzedakah. It's sometimes translated as the word righteous. I chose to go with my friends from seminary that translated the New English translation, the word the Lord is just. He sets right what has been set out of joint. He brings to an end what is unjust. What the psalmist is doing here in the first part of the psalm is his first response and his first exhortation to us. What do you do in the face of mistreatment? This is what you do. You hope in the just work of the Lord. You believe that the Lord is just. That that is His nature and that you believe that the Lord works justice. He will set to right what is not set right. That is how you hope. That is what you do in the face of mistreatment, even as prolonged as it may be. Look, for Israel to even sing this psalm, you have to remember they spent hundreds of years in slavery. This is not a pie-in-the-sky sort of sentimentality. They know what it is to suffer. And yet, somehow, they are still able to say, the Lord is just. Now, what does that look like in our day? And I do want to illustrate it for you, but I also need to address at least two elephants in the room that have just walked in. Did you notice them? Here's, here's the first elephant. When, when I say to you, hope that the Lord is just, I would dare say that there's at least three of you under your breath that are going, ha, Really? Just. I knew they were going to drag me here and tell me stuff I didn't believe. The Lord is just. Tell me? Really? Well, he has a funny way of showing it because there's a lot of injustice in this world, right? You know what? If you're thinking that, I get it. And you know what? You're also not the first person to think that, so please don't pat yourself on the back too hard. Let me give you a name who said the same thing. His name is C.S. Lewis. (gasps) When C.S. Lewis was an atheist, He admitted to saying that his primary reason for not believing in God was because of all the injustice in the world. If this world was supposed to be just and God was supposed to be just, allegedly, well, any time now! He thought that. But then he had another thought. Wait a minute. If there is no God, the world has no meaning, there is no purpose, then why am I so mad about injustice? In fact, who even told me what just was? As he put it in in, in one of his books, um, how how can I tell you that a a line is crooked if I didn't know what straight was? And so he had to ask himself, if I don't believe that there's any God and there's any purpose, then why am I so uppity about injustice? And then he kind of realized he had a choice. You can either believe that there is a God that there's meaning in this world, that there is a justice that is and is to be done and still wrestle with the fact that you don't understand why it doesn't play out in all the ways that you would think it would. That's one option. The other option is to say there is no God, there is no meaning, and therefore there is no justice, and therefore I cannot be mad about it. Now you can feel mad, and you will, and I do, and you have, but you can't justify the anger. Because if there is no God, then there is no justice. There is nothing to which we are obliged to a transcendent authority. So there's your choice. Yes, you can be angry about why injustice continues. But if you're going to leave God out of the equation, then you'll have to keep your anger to yourself. That's one elephant in the room. Look, be angry about injustice. Just don't rule out God in the midst of your doing so. But let's talk about the second. Let's talk about the second elephant in the room. Um, is what the psalm is saying that I'm just supposed to sit back and wait for justice to happen? Is this implicitly encouraging some sort of passive posture in the world of justice or injustice? What do you think? Exactly. Look, just look at the Bible storyline and in how many places in which injustice was prevalent and what happens. God raises up somebody to be an advocate in the face of that injustice. If you're in Israel and you're under bondage, who steps up? Moses. If your people are now on the crosshairs of an ethnic genocide, who steps up? Esther. If I perish, I perish, she says. If you're in the middle of exile in Babylon and they're not even sure if they want to keep you around and they want to just decimate you or absorb you or criticize you, who steps up? Daniel. In those and other instances, justice is done and God can do it in, through extraordinary means, but he does no less so through with courage and through clarity through men and women who act in that way and step into that space. So yes, hoping that God is just and that he works justice, there is a rational, logical category for that, even if it tests our strength and our mettle and faith at every moment. But it also invites us into that walk into that moment when we need to. And it's no less so an act of God than when we do so. Now, what does it look like? I'm glad you asked. I've told you this story before, but it's been a few years, so you've probably forgotten it. His name is James Lawson. He was part of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. He was a pastor. And he got busted a lot of times for speaking about justice in places that didn't really want to hear another word from him. But if you remember the story I told you before about him, He's at a rally, he's in Jackson, Mississippi, it's in the 60s, and up walks a guy on a motorcycle and sees James Lawson, knows what he stands for, and spits in his face. What would you do in the moment? James Lawson in the moment did this. He asked the man for a handkerchief so he could wipe his face. He asked the guy who just spit on him for a handkerchief so that he could wipe his face. And before the guy that just spit on him knows what he's doing, he ends up handing James Lawson a handkerchief. Like, he, he didn't think to himself, I'm supposed to be mad at you. I'm supposed to be a racist today. Sorry, I'm forgetting I'm not a racist. So he hands him a handkerchief. And what does James Lawson do? He says, hey, um, is that your motorcycle? And there ensues a conversation about the guy's motorcycle. And, And they just start talking, and it becomes amicable. And by the end of the conversation, the guy that just spit on Reverend James Lawson says, "Um, is there anything we can do for (laughs) y'all? He had several options in the moment. He chose that one. He chose to hope that there was a justice. He asked to hope that there was a Lord who oversaw justice. And that's why when people ask him, Whenever he tells the story, how in the world did you do that? He's, this is what he says. You have to keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility. What fuels keeping in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility? I'll tell you the Lord in whose name he marched. That's what it looks like. He's not hardened toward God in it, he's not cynical. About the possibility of justice in the world, and he doesn't become what is opposing him. That's what it means to hope that the Lord is just. And there you see a very vivid example that is probably being replicated in all sorts of places in the world, but that's what it means to hope in the just work of the Lord. Now, that's what the psalmist is out to tell us because he believes that God is just, but there's another thing that he does. And it's the other response to the face of injustice. And it actually represents a very unique, we'll just say atypical way of expressing that hope. And what comes on the back half of the passage. The first half is, is recounting a moment in which he gives God praise for demonstrating justice. The back half of the psalm is the psalmist praying. Praying that God would work justice again. Because if you let me, let me just read the last four verses again. Because if you, you, as soon as you hear it, you go, "Is that in the Bible?" (laughs) Because listen, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, "The blessing of the Lord be upon you." We bless you in the name of the Lord. That's that's an angry prayer. This guy's praying angry. He's praying against the opposition. He's praying against those who are out to mistreat him and Israel in whatever sort of way. And so what is he praying for? He is praying that they would be repelled. He is praying that what they are out to do would never take root. He is praying that what they would do, their whole project would be thwarted. He's praying... Against that, that there'd be no success to it. There's no blessing to it. He's, he's praying that theirs is going to get handed to them. That whatever God must do to take them out, that He would. And as soon as we hear that, we go, okay, um, what do we do with that? The, here's your $5 word for the day. This is what we call imprecatory psalms. And there are many in the, in the psalms. Where it is a prayer for curses to come down upon those who are antagonistic, who are full of hate towards the Lord and His people. It's an imprecatory psalm, and this is one of them. And this isn't even the fiercest of the ones that you might find in Scripture. And so when you hear that, is there not a part of you that goes, okay, wait. (laughs) What about turn the other cheek? What about keep in your mind an imagery of infinite possibility?" I mean, is is this just a is is just this a text that maybe we should avoid and leave out of lectionary or don't talk about it because it's like it doesn't work or is this just sort of obsolete Iron Age thinking about how to deal with malice? Um, look, on the surface, it's full of anger, and and I hope that part of you would go, yeah, I get that. Uh, not only do I get it, I might feel inclined to be that way. If anybody has ever tried to hurt your children, if there is no fury in you, you are not awake. So at its surface level, it makes perfect sense why this person would be praying angrily about frustrating the plans of those who are out to oppose them. But here, here's where I want you to walk with me a little bit. I, I field tested this on, on one of the women's Bible studies yesterday, and, and it was fun, and I, I love their critique. Um... But walk with me for a second, because here's the question. If God is love, if we know him to be love at the center of our being, at the center of his being, and that to know him is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then how do we deal with this proper anger that's here while letting love prevail? How do those two things go together, or are they two things that are torn asunder? And I would like to suggest to you that based upon what we know of the whole Bible, and based upon what we know of somebody in particular in the Bible, there is something to this prayer that you might miss on a first reading, and it's this. Is it possible? Is it possible that attached to this prayer of anger that there is also a bit of love? No. Work with me here. This is clearly a prayer to frustrate the plans of those who have malicious plans and designs set against them. That's clear. They want it to stop. But where love comes in in a prayer like that is not just to curse them in the way of frustrating them, but to curse them for what it's doing to those who are doing the, the, the bad things. that you ought not only want them to stop from mistreating you, you want them to stop from doing something to themselves in the doing. Now, kids be like right now, what is he talking about? What do you mean? So let's go back to the schoolyard for a second. Let's go back to the bully, right? Uh, in the proverbial, uh, you know, uh, stereotypical thing you find in the films where a bully comes in and starts pounding on you. You want them off. You want that to end. You want, the, you want the beatings to cease. But imagine if in the same moment you wanted to stop them, not only for what they're doing to you, but what for them for what they're doing to themselves by continuing in the way that every time they are acting in that way, they are making them more and more in themselves like a monster. There's a monk, his name is Thomas Merton, he lived up in Kentucky back in the 1950s, and he said this, every single act you do plants something in your soul. That which you commit to, that which you practice, whatever your rhythms are, it is planting something. Something will germinate. Can you imagine then just for a moment that maybe a prayer, this angry prayer to frustrate the plans of them is actually a prayer of love? Because you're not only wanting them to stop doing to you what they're doing to you, you want them to stop doing to themselves what they're not even aware of. Let me, let me, let me provide you an illustration that you might laugh at more than you'll ever learn from. But a few weeks ago, we, we, we entertained Ralphie from Christmas Story, right? And, and you know, he's bullied by Scott Farkas. What a horrible name. Um, and, and he's getting, you know, mocked, ridiculed, you know, uncle, uncle, you know, all the time until finally Ralphie goes full postal, starts taking out Scott Farkas and, you know, talk about cursing. Um, in that moment, he is letting out his frustration. Now, I'd like you to imagine a totally different moment with all the same characters. And this time, Ralphie has subdued Scott Farkas on the ground, but then he puts his hands on the fake fur of the fake leather jacket, and he says to Scott, Scott, stop doing this to me. Why? Scott, do you know what you're doing to yourself? I'm trying to stop you from doing to me what is also going to take something out of you. You're becoming a monster. That, friends, that is a prayer trying to frustrate the plans of those whose hatred is for you, but it's also a prayer for them. And that may be silly. That might be a silly way of trying to illustrate the idea of love that's attached to this kind of angry prayer. But, but let me put it in a very different light. I've told you this illustration before from Dan Allender, who had a married couple in his office. And there had been abuse. Or rather, there had been adultery. And Allender looked at, looked at, the, at the spouse who had been harmed and said, if I had two buttons here, and, and one button you could push, and it would mean the destruction of your spouse, or another button here, and if you push that button, it would mean their complete renewal and restoration, which would you pick? And if you're the one who had been defrauded and violated, when you hear that, we all know the first impulse. You want them out. But what would pushing the other button mean? It would be this kind of praying angry. To stop them in their tracks from what they're doing because of what they're doing to you, but also to stop them in their tracks for what they're doing to themselves. That's an angry prayer that is full of love. And is as hard as you for to hear, it's as hard for me to even speak it because Because I know where we usually go and I know I feel the the righteous indignation that wells up in us in the midst of moments like that. And that's why we have to ask this question. Even if we believed that love should circumscribe the anger that we righteously and properly feel, who's ever going to do that? Who would ever want to do that? how would you ever want to even have the slightest desire to pray against something and someone for what they're doing and yet to pray for them that they would not do it any longer and for them? Where do you find that? I think you find it in beauty. And I think you find that beauty in a story. And I think you find that story in the one who lived this psalm to the uttermost. He wasn't just born into deprivation. He was born into a war zone. That kid was hunted. Herod wanted him dead. This, this person wasn't just, you know discredited or, or marginalized or silenced. His first sermon, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And then they have this, this show trial followed by the scourging upon His back. You want to talk about furrows up your back? He had them. But what Jesus does on a cross, I think totally resembles what these last four verses of this psalm is doing, except that He perfects the angry prayer. He perfects it. And He perfects it by saying one thing as He's dying. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He is coming against their injustice. At the same time, he's trying to help them avoid a path of destruction. And he's calling for their forgiveness. Friends, that's a praying angry against what they're doing, but for them. And I don't know how I or you will ever be able to link those two together rather than tear them asunder apart from his story. And believing that we're the beneficiaries of that story. Because when you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. When I was yet His enemy, Christ died for me. And that is why it may not make it any easier to pray in this way. It may make it possible. Kids, when you go to school and somebody is in your face all the time and they despise you and harass you and harangue you, pray angry. Pray angry. Pray against what they're doing. But pray for them in the same way. Because what they're doing to you is also coming back on them. In your neighborhood, in your workplace, friends, in your school, if people are coming after you or against you, pray angry. Pray understandably for the end to what they're doing to you, but pray for them. When you come and join us from 304, 305, from 945 to 1015 on Sundays, when we gather for corporate prayer, come and pray angry if that's been your week. This is his story. This is his song. And this is how we find the way to love and to forgive because we know we've been forgiven. And as hard as it may sound, by his Spirit it is possible. Let's pray. Now, Father, even as I say those words, I'm, I'm reluctant to say, teach us. I don't want to be in a situation like that. I don't want to face that kind of mistreatment. I know how I ordinarily do respond to it. But I would ask that you would help me and my friends here, whether they believe or do not, that in you is a love that is full of anger, a jealous anger, and a righteous anger that will defend what you love Oh, Father, humble us and help us to know what it is to hope in the belief that you're just. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: All right. Well, Before you go, I uh, receive this, this good word. It's benediction. And something we do, some of you do this, um, it's okay if you don't, but if I invite you to hold your hands up in an act of receiving this good word from him. We're not being weirdos when we do this, we're, we're trying to receive it, <laughs> or maybe we're being a little weird, okay. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ bless us with his own righteous anger at the injustices of our world, near and far away. May God the Father bless us with tears for those who are suffering here and abroad and to pray in love for justice to be done. And may God the Holy Spirit fill us with his otherworldly peace as we await the restoration of all things when Christ returns. The peace and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
0: And also with you. Go in his peace.